Luke 23, verse 32. <clears throat> and there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father, we thank you for this precious time. We can look into your word and we pray that you would feed us your truths through it this morning. I pray that as your spirit works within our hearts, that we would truly be open to his leading and to his teaching. We pray that our lives would continue to be drawn closer to your love, that we might understand it more fully, that we might experience it more, that we might give it more. Father, we understand that we only loved you because you first loved us, but we pray that we would love you more perfectly because you deserve every part of us. You deserve our full attention. Father, for the love that you showed us at Calvary, we pray that our lives would indeed show that love to this world who so desperately needs it. So bless us with your presence this morning. May you be honoured. May you be glorified. May you be worshipped in spirit and in truth this morning as the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, is lifted up in this place today. We glorify him. And in his name we pray. Amen. You know, as you look around the world at the moment, with all the troubles that are going on and all the troubles we've been through over the last few years, it seems to be a never-ending story of cycles. When one thing finishes, another thing starts. In the midst of all the trouble that we have in the world, much of the world stops this weekend. And for most churches in the world, actually for all churches in the world that call themselves Christian, this is the most holy of times of the year. In fact, this day is probably regarded as the most holy day of the entire year because this day is the very reason that we can be here. Because if this day did not occur 2,000 years ago, you and I would be doing something else. Maybe we'd be going out fishing or maybe enjoying some holidays or maybe there wouldn't be a holiday. There you go. So you've got another holiday. But while many churches are filled, and I praise God that our church is filled this morning, while many families are getting together to celebrate this time together and spend some time together to encourage one another and to be with each other, while there are people going on holidays and spending time with their families and having a well-deserved rest, while much chocolate is eaten and many eggs are given and many hot cross buns are consumed, which we do as well over here, by the way. Um, the challenge we have in this world is that most people don't even comprehend what this, what this day actually means. They understand that Jesus apparently rose from the grave, but they don't understand the meaning of the crucifixion and this thing we call the resurrection of Christ and what it means for them personally. 
If you don't understand the significance of why Jesus came into this world and why he died, had to die on that cross and why he rose again on that third day and how it fulfilled God's promise to the world to save us from our sin, the Bible says you can't even understand and believe the gospel. If you don't understand the crucifixion, the resurrection, you can't understand the gospel. And so therefore you can't claim that thing for yourself. The cross in its essence is and was and forever will be the greatest act of love and demonstration of love the world will ever know. And we struggle to comprehend it, this act of love. The Bible tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But most people in the world don't have eternal life. Most people in the world hold on to a religion. They hold on to their traditions. They hold on to their culture and they hold on to their families and they hold on to everything else in this world that seems important to them. But they haven't held on to Christ. If you understand the gospel and how much God loves us, and how that love was demonstrated in Jesus Christ dying on that cross for you personally. You can't lay hold of eternal life. If you understand God's love for you, it's the first eye-opener that you'll ever have. So today, I would like to examine the love of God through the eyes of a criminal. Through the eyes of someone who everyone would say didn't deserve love he deserved exactly what he got and this is our own personal dilemma because we all say the same thing that person deserves what they got but i don't deserve anything i don't deserve to be punished i'm too good i'm always better than the person next to me compared to everyone else i'm a saint there is no reason that God would put me to death. There is no reason God would send me to hell. Yet the Bible tells us that we are all sinners worthy of hell. So today I'd like to examine the love of God through the eyes of this criminal and what he saw in Jesus Christ who was dying next to him on a cross and what changed his life forever. When we reflect upon what Jesus endured on that cross, what kept him there, you, because you understand, maybe you don't, but he didn't have to stay there. He told Pilate that at any moment he could call down 12 legions of angels and they would simply liberate him because he was a king. But this king chose to actually be treated in this way and he did it because of his love for you and me. When you understand that he didn't have to go through this, but you understand what he endured so he could complete the job that God the Father had given him, maybe you'll appreciate, even to a small extent, the love that he has for you personally. My hope is that this sermon will lead you to know more fully the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's look at verse 32, Luke chapter 23, verse 32. It says, and there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. So as we begin here, we understand that Jesus was given his own cross to carry. He was, he was brought to trial. He was, he, was, he was wrongfully condemned. Even a pilot washed his hands of the whole thing because he said, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. I don't know why you people want to get rid of him. But the leaders of Jerusalem were unified in their desire that they had to get rid of him because he taught things, he showed things, he demonstrated things which made them look like hypocrites. And when hypocrites are shown up, they don't like it. And so their job to this point was almost at a completion. You see, the Romans had a really cruel way of dealing with the worst criminals. And they would do it very publicly. Not like here. You know, they put you away in prison and you don't see that person anymore. 
No, this, this the Romans had a really nifty way of, of dealing with you if you were a troublemaker. They would kill you and torture you publicly. And so it says here that Jesus was to be put to death publicly with other criminals. And it says with two other malefactors. The word malefactor is a criminal, okay? So he was paraded down the streets of Jerusalem, forced to carry his own cross. At one point, he couldn't carry it anymore. They'd beaten him so badly and he'd been ripped so much, he'd lost so much blood already that he, he struggled to carry it. So there was a fellow called Simon who they uh, made to help him carry the cross. So can you imagine if you lived in Jerusalem in those days? And you were forced to do this thing. You know, these these days people are afraid to get downvoted on social media. They cry if people don't like what they what they do. We are so concerned with with the public persona that we have, that we are we, we the last thing we ever want is to be ostracized by the by our community, by the people that that we want their appreciation and we want their um, attention from. So people are really concerned that if they do something wrong or they say something wrong, that they're going to be ostracised by their own community. Worst. But before social media ever happened, Jesus' perfect reputation, someone who had done no wrong, who had spent his entire life trying to do good to everyone, the Bible says, was utterly smeared. His reputation destroyed in the most terif terrifying and, 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 and unjust way by those who were in power. Those who were able to influence other people managed to get and drive people against him. Even though he had done nothing wrong, he simply told the truth and loved people. And yet he found himself paraded down the street mocked in the company of other criminals. So the first thing I want you to understand this morning is that he was willing to lose his reputation for you. Verse 33 then says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Most of you have seen what's in, and understand what's involved with crucifixion, but um, you know, once you've been beaten and once your back's been ripped to shreds by a Roman uh, whip, which has rocks and, and glass in it, um, you'll understand that when they threw him on top of that cross, which was not a smooth piece of wood, by the way, and then drove nails into his hands and his feet, um, and then hung in a place that was for all to see. Um, crucifixion is probably the most savage way you could ever die in this world. And they did it publicly. Not in some hidden place, as I've said, and not in a quick manner either. Didn't die by firing squad. Didn't die by lethal injection or electric chair where you die within... A few seconds. No, no, this thing was made to last hours and hours and hours while you hung in a public place full of shame and on display in the middle of two other criminals. And so the person that we celebrate today was willing, more than willing, to become a public spectacle and to die in that gruesome way for you. The next thing you find out about him is that he was despitefully treated while he was being crucified. It says in verse 34, then said Jesus, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So while they were doing all this to him and enjoying it, doing it 
he asked for forgiveness. Now, what type of a person is this? That while he's being wrongfully murdered, wrongfully killed, while he's trying to save people, and these people think they're doing their service to God, or these people think they're doing their society service by crucifying him in this way, what type of person actually asked for forgiveness for these people? What type of grace and mercy did he possess where he forgave them and asked Father, his Father in heaven, to forgive them? Sometimes we struggle to forgive people for years. Sometimes it takes us a very long time to forgive people and we give ourselves that luxury always, don't we? Forgiveness is on my time. If someone does something wrong to me, it's up to me when I choose to forgive them. And so we take our sweet time about it until we learn to deal with it, until we can learn to accept it. And then in our good time, we may forgive someone if we have that grace. And yet here we have Christ forgiving people when they hadn't even finished doing what they were doing. Let this be a lesson to us about the type of love and grace that we're being called to have. But while he's forgiving them and he asks the Father to forgive them, they're gambling his clothes away. It says in verse 34, it says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots, which means they gambled for those his last few possessions that he had, his coat. The, the idea behind crucifixion was to make that person who was dying on that cross and maybe all those who might be watching realise that that person has been stripped of everything. Everything's been taken away from them. Their humility, their, their, their pride, their standing in society, their reputation, even to the last thing, to the last bit of clothing, you were stripped of everything. And the idea was to make it as painful as possible. So I can't imagine another more painful thing than to watch my last few possessions while I'm dying on the cross um, being gambled among the soldiers. The, the picture was that if you're a criminal, you didn't deserve anything. You deserve to have everything taken away from you. And so as a criminal, the soldiers made sure that this happened to Jesus. Jesus allowed himself to lose every earthly possession for you. In addition to these sufferings, the Bible says that while he hung there dying, people made fun of him. They mocked him. Starting with the rulers of Jerusalem who mocked him and his claim to be the Christ, to the soldiers. Look at verse 35, it says, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. That wasn't meant to be a challenge. That was meant to be mockery. They made fun of him. Oh, if you're really the Christ, go on, jump off the cross now. Save yourself. Let's see, if God saves you, then we'll follow you. So the rulers who had conspired to get rid of Christ made fun of him while, while he died. In addition, the soldiers who were crucifying him, who had the job to execute him, were making fun of his claim to be the king of the Jews. And they offered him vinegar to drink. Look at verse 36. It says, And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. There's all types of ideas about why they gave Jesus vinegar and gall to drink and 
whether it was meant to be a sedative or a pain reliever or I, I don't know drinking a glass of wine while you're you're being completely mangled and had nails through your um, hands and feet well that would make any difference to your pain level but I suspect it wasn't that I suspect that it while he was a king, and they'll make fun of him being a king, I suspect that no king drinks vinegar. The kings only drink the best of wine. Here, drink. You're a king, drink up. And they said in verse 37, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And Pilate, even though he washed his hands of this situation, had a board put up over above the cross so everyone could see. Written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. Do you think that was serious? No. That was another joke they had going on. That if this was really the king of the Jews, look at him. Look at the type of king the Jews have. Let me share with you this morning that he endured all that scorn for you and me so that we could be saved from our sin. And finally, even the criminal who was dying next to him mocked him and criticised him as well, saying, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and, and, and save us as well. Did he really believe it? No. He didn't believe he was coming down from that cross. He didn't believe that Jesus was going to come down from that cross. In fact, he was being sarcastic. Even though he himself was dying as a criminal. It says in verse 39, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. What kept Jesus on that cross? Could he have come down from that cross? Yes, he could have. Could he have spared himself all that mockery, all that pain, all that humiliation, all the shame? Could he have spared himself of all of that? Yes, could have. And I suspect if it was any one of us, we probably would have spared, we probably would have spared ourselves that pain. But yet Jesus has such amazing grace to be able to look beyond the sufferings, the humiliation and what he was going through to take all these things on top of that to have the sins of the entire world on his shoulders and to find himself in a place that he had never experienced before. To find himself a sinner carrying all those sins. To be separated from his father. And yet, he was determined to go through with it to the end. He saw the job through. He was determined to finish what he started. So, the writer, the writer of Hebrews tells us when we're going through struggles in our own life, when we struggle with sin and the temptation that so easily ensnares us, when we are maybe made fun of by people in this world for what we believe and maybe because of our faith in Christ, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, if you turn with me now, it tells us to look at him. Look at him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus was held up for everyone to see. He was surrounded by people who hated him. He was Crucified in the midst of people who didn't, who hated him and made fun of him. And so Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him 
that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So we're told by the writer of Hebrews, you know, when you're struggling, when you're going through, through hard times in your life and, and you're being maybe persecuted or made fun of or mocked or whatever else it may be, because you simply trust in Jesus and you feel faint or weary in your struggle with sin or whatever else you may be going through, he tells us to consider him who endured all that, who endured the cross, and such contradiction of sinners against himself. In other words, he allowed people to do things to him when he could have stopped at any moment. But he allowed them. Lest you become wearied and faint in your minds. The next time you're tempted to complain. The next time we may be tempted to put down our guard. The next time we feel tired. The next time... We look at someone who has done something wrong to us and we feel, no, I'm not going to forgive that person because I don't deserve it. Let us remind ourselves what grace is all about. Grace is given to us when we didn't deserve it. And he endured the cross for sinners who were against him. And you know, you know, you know who was in that sit, those sinners? We were. You and I were the reason he had to endure that cross. You have not escaped this. Every one of us is in the middle of it. And there is no guarantee on that day, if we were in that place experiencing and seeing what was going on, that we'd be one of the good people. By his suffering, he forgave the world. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 6 with me. As the Apostle Paul explains the amazing love for us that was demonstrated in this crucifixion. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in other words, we had no ability to be able to overcome sin. We couldn't fight it. It was our nature to sin. In fact, it's everyone's nature to sin. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the ungodly is you and me. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some might even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we shall be saved by his life. God saved us when we didn't deserve it. We didn't cry out to God and say, my heavenly father, please save me because look at me, I'm already your child and look how good I am. The Bible says that we didn't even go running after God. We didn't seek God. He came chasing us. There was nothing in us that would, that would merit our, our salvation. In fact, we were enemies of God. And yet, all the while, God showed his love by sending his son to die on that cross for our sake. The crucifixion, and this is the reason, the crucifixion is the greatest and most significant act of God's love you can ever, ever understand. God loved the world so much that he gave up that which was most precious to him in the most terrifying way we can imagine that we came up with. To save us. Jesus had been mocked, beaten, whipped. He had been humiliated. He had been hung on a cross. And finally had a spear thrust in his side. His hands and feet had been pierced through with iron nails that weren't the ones you buy from Bunnings. Now these were, these were nasty things. 
They weren't smooth. They were simply designed to hammer into that wood hard enough to hold the person up. These weren't small nails. So as you imagine his nails being pierced through, it wasn't with something that was fine. It was something that was terribly thick. And his hands and his feet were pierced through with these iron nails and he was left suspended on a wooden cross hovering between heaven and earth. And it was while Jesus hung on that wooden cross that all of the world's history collided in that one place. All of the world's history, all of its evil, all its sin, its rebellion and its consequences and all the suffering that we have put others through as well was narrowly focused by God the Father on his own son. That body that was sinless, in fact, he was the only perfect person, the only innocent person to have ever walked this earth, was now bearing all of our sin and our shame on a cross. That body that had been beaten and whipped and nailed, that one solitary life bore my sin and yours while he suffered and bled on that day. But the story gets better. And this is the, the, the point of this particular story because even in the midst of his suffering, while he's dying for the sins of the world and with people mocking him and the suffering that he was going through, not everyone was mocking him. There was one who didn't. And so while everyone's mocking him, making fun of him, deriding him, there was one who was silent, who himself had started mocking, but we see in this story that somehow he went silent while others kept going. And it was a thief who was dying next to him. When this thief heard the ridicule that the other thief had towards Jesus, and he heard the ridicule and, the, and, and saw the treatment that Jesus received from all his other people, his heart must have churned within him as he was about to face that doorway to death himself and thought to himself, why am I doing this? And we have to wonder what changed in this person. What makes this person different? What made him at that particular point have a change of heart so that he begins to put his faith in the guy who's dying next to him? What turned his heart towards Jesus? Was it the fact that while they were screaming and swearing, maybe while they were being nailed to their cross, Jesus didn't? Was it the fact that, that while Jesus was being cursed and spat upon and, uh, and ridiculed, he didn't hear him say anything back? Maybe while Jesus was being crucified in the midst of it, he asked for forgiveness for those people. Maybe he saw an utterly different kind of spirit compared to the ones that he'd grown up his life because it seems as if he was a person who had been involved in criminality for a long time. Maybe he saw love in this person even as he was dying next to him. Maybe he saw love for the first time. I don't know the answer. I don't know... What turned his heart that we find in this man something different? Look in verse 40 of Luke chapter 23. Luke 23 verse 40. So after one of the criminals mocked Jesus saying, if you're really the Christ, you know, save yourself and save us and get us out of this situation as well. It says, but the other, in verse 40, but the other answering him rebuked him saying, does not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same, con seeing you're being killed the same way. 
and we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. What a wonderful demonstration of what repentance is. You ever wonder what repentance is? Look at this story. In his final hours, this, this man found the meaning of life was actually right next to him. And it started with the fear of God. So the Bible tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This man was coming to the end of his life. He knew that in a few short hours, he was gone. And so if there was a God, he might have to stand before him and give an account. It's a good time to find the fear of God, isn't it? And that's why he, he tells off the other one saying, don't you fear God? Why would he fear God? Because God is holy. God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly loving. And we are none of those. And this criminal who was dying says he was receiving what he was supposed to get. And he realized that he was going to have to face this holy and just God who was going to judge him for what he'd done. So he found the fear of God. And he understood that God, if he is just and if he is holy, must punish sin. And it was obvious to the thief that he was under the same condemnation of death, but realized that he rightly deserved it. He confessed that he was receiving the right thing for what he had done, the right and due reward for his own deeds. Do you understand what repentance is? It's changing your mind about who God is. It's finding that fear of God and saying, no, you're just, you're holy, but I'm not. And I deserve to go to hell. I deserve it for my life. That's what repentance is. Repentance is agreeing with God about his assessment of us. And this thief who was on that cross understood that. And in the same sentence proclaimed that Jesus was innocent. He knew Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. He declared it in front of other people. And then he made a profession that the only, the, the, all the other ones were only making in jest or in scorn. And he says in verse 42, And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What a request. What, what faith in the light of his position. He calls Jesus Lord. Wow, how did he get to that realisation that quick? It took me 10 years to call Jesus Lord. It took me a long, long time after hearing all about him and after reading the Bible and after trying to be convinced by other people about who Jesus was, it took me 10 years to call him Lord. And yet here's this man within a few, who knows, maybe just a couple of hours or an hour, calling him Lord. So he declares his belief in him. He's just declared him the Messiah. He's declared him his king. And he asks him a simple request and he says, can you please remember me? When you come into your kingdom, just, just remember me. Have you thought about that? He doesn't come out with some theological argument about, you know, why he deserves to be, you know, in heaven. There isn't any great, you know, an eloquent you know, prayer that he offers. There's no perfect doctrine. There's no, maybe there's a complete lack of understanding. Maybe he didn't even understand what heaven was or what good doctrine was at all. I suspect he didn't know much at all. But he knew one thing. He knew that Jesus was real. 
And he thought, if I'm going to put my trust in someone just before I'm about to go, it's going to be this guy. I'm going to trust him. And so he calls him Lord. And he says, can you please remember me? In that moment, as he approached the end of his life, he only asked for one thing, that this guy who was next to him would simply remember him. He didn't ask for salvation even. He simply says to Jesus, who was the most important person to him at that time. He was the most important person. And I don't know about you, but there are plenty of people in this world who would like to be known and recognised by a famous person. Ever thought of that? You know, if, if someone really famous knows your name and you can say, oh, so-and-so knows me, just to be remembered by someone who is famous is really something that a lot of people would love to have. Just to be remembered by someone who's well-known. But when you're about to die, um, that recognition by famous people in the world means nothing. When you're about to face death, it doesn't matter who knows you in this world. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Because in the end, it all means nothing. It means zero. Zip. Zilch. It's foolishness to go parading around saying, oh, so-and-so knows me, or oh, look what I've done in the past, or all that actually amounts to nothing. But what does matter is that God knows you. What really matters is that the Lord Jesus knows you and remembers you. That's the most important person that you want remembering you as you approach death. But Jesus grants much more than just remembering him. He doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't say, yes, I'll remember you. No problems at all. He says to him something which is truly amazing. In verse 43, it says, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today. Don't worry. You're with me. He wouldn't just be remembered. He would be with Jesus. Jesus says, no, no, you're, you're with me now. Wherever I'm going, you're going. And he, would, and he promises this person that he would be with him in a holy place called paradise. Among all the others who had already received the grace of God. Can you imagine this person now finding himself in that moment when he closed his eyes and died? He finds himself in this place surrounded by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. And a moment before, he was a thief being executed for his crimes. And yet here he is among all these people and you'd have to be shaking his head. But the moment Jesus said to him, the moment Jesus promised him, you would be, you'll be with me today in paradise, is a promise he could hold on to and he could believe. And that's the promise that Jesus makes to everyone who puts their faith in him. If there's anything you can hold on to in life, it's the promises of God. And when Jesus says, you're with me, simply if you trust me to save you, then that is the most precious thing you will ever have or you can ever own in this life and in the next. Because if there's any place you want to be, it's with him. The knowledge, if you have it this morning, that knowledge, that understanding, that promise, if you've claimed it for yourself, transforms your life. 
It's the most precious thing you can ever have and the most precious thing you can give to other people. It's the thing that separates those who are going to heaven from those who are going to hell. You see, all those who are going to hell who are following some sort of a system of rules or following some sort of a, a religion or, or belonging to some sort of church or, or doing this or doing that, all of those things they'll find at the end mean nothing as they try to present all their wonderful works before God and God says, okay, that's all rubbish. What have you got left? And then when they're left with nothing, God then says, okay, now you need to give an account of all the sins that you've done, all the crimes you've committed. And that person is left with nothing, no argument, no ability to be able to defend themselves, regardless of how much effort they've put in. And this is the sad thing about it. There are plenty of people in this world who try so hard at their religion, who put in so much effort to please God, to do stuff that's going to make him happy. But in the end, the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, thereof is death. You might wonder, how could Jesus make that statement to this fellow? Oh, you're going to be with me today. To this man dying next to him when he was a thief and probably a murderer. We would say, he doesn't deserve it, Lord. He's killed people. He's a thief by trade. That's his life. Imagine how many people he's ruined or how many, how much suffering he's made other people go through. The first thing we would say is, why are you doing it to him for? He doesn't deserve it. How could this fellow be made fit for heaven? Be made fit to go with Jesus, to be in paradise, to be with all the greats of the Old Testament? When he hadn't done one good thing, not one, didn't even get baptised. So I don't believe it if anyone ever tells you you have to be baptised to go to heaven. Baptism does not save you. Water does not save you. It's Jesus who saves you. Otherwise, this fellow didn't have a chance of going to paradise with Jesus. This fellow had not done or had the opportunity to do one good thing to make up for all the bad things he'd done. But what had happened was that the blood of Christ was already covering him of his sin. He put his, his faith in Christ and that's all he needed to do. And yet, without even asking for forgiveness, did you hear in this, in this prayer, Lord, you know, forgive me of all my sins by your blood? No, he didn't even ask for that. Didn't even ask for forgiveness. Without even asking to be given heaven or eternal life, this man simply admitted his guilt, changed his mind about his circumstance, said that God was holy, Christ was innocent, and he called Jesus Lord. And at that moment, he was given eternal life and the promise of heaven. This is the message of the gospel contained in the story of a criminal who knew from the moment, from that moment on, that he had been accepted by God and made clean and presentable to him. And that's all he knew. He didn't get a chance to, to refine all his doctrinal positions. He didn't get a chance to study the Bible and learn all the deep and meaningful stuff. He didn't get a chance to ponder how wonderful God is in his life. All he knew was that he needed one thing. And that one thing was right next to him, and he did it. God had determined from the beginning of the world, before the world began, that through the cross, mankind would be given a pathway back to him. It was only through the cross, and it was only ever be through the cross, that that door back to God is opened to us. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him and by that path. And so we have this moral imperative upon us for those of us who have received this wonderful gift, for those of us who understand this truth, to tell others about it. Because it is the only way. And while people are out there celebrating today, if they don't understand what's happened, 
if they haven't received it for themselves, they're celebrating in vanity. It's a celebration of vanity. God was determined that through the cross, he was going to make that pathway back to him. And it would be through the cross that God showed his love, his forgiveness, and his mercy to the world, which is why Jesus had to stay on that cross. He had to finish that job. He had to complete the work that God the Father had given him until he had paid for all of our sins and tasted death for all of us too. But the story of the gospel and the reason that we celebrate today didn't finish the cross, you see. It's the very reason that we're here. The story of the gospel or the story, the story that, that some people call Easter and some people Resurrection Sunday doesn't finish with death, but it finishes with triumph and life and hope. Jesus may have promised a dying thief that he would be, or that they would be together in paradise on that day. But something even more wonderful was about to happen. You see, the, the, the thief didn't get a chance to even understand that Jesus was going to rise on the third day. He hadn't seen that. But something else was going to happen on that third day where Jesus even defeated death itself. Yes, Jesus was a king. He is the king. And even death had to kneel before him. And that's good news for us. Now, life after death is a central theme, not just Christianity, but pretty much every other religion, every other faith in the world, which 90% of the world's population believes in some life after death, some sort of existence after you die. But Christianity is different from the point of view that we believe in this thing called the resurrection. The resurrection. In other words, we don't just exist as spirit beings after we die. God actually resurrects us. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have a hope that we will too be one day resurrected from the grave. In other words, you can be with Jesus if you died right now in heaven, but you'll exist not in your normal form. You see, God made us tripartite beings. He gave us a body, he gave us a soul, and he gave us a spirit, unlike the angels who are spirit beings. And our normal state is not to be just as a soul and a spirit. Our normal state is to be as we are, with a body, with a physical body. But the Bible says that God not only is going to redeem us and save us, and so we're with him immediately when we die, when we're, when we're separated from the body. But the Bible says because Jesus rose again from the grave, that God's going to give us brand new bodies. And they're going to be like Jesus' body. Well, all the religions of the world surmise about what's happening after death. What type of place heaven is, or what type of place nirvana is, or what type of place, what is, uh, whatever, whatever they want to call it. No one, not one of them have been there. But we serve a, a saviour who has been there and has come back. He is the only one who has been there and come back to tell the story about it. So we can trust whatever he says about it, because he's the one who made it. He's the one not only who's been there and come back, he's the one who's actually made heaven and hell and everything that we know in this universe. We don't have to theorize about it. We know it to be true because Jesus rose again on the third day. You won't be forgotten. You'll never be forgotten. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will never, ever be forgotten. In fact, God knows your name now. And he knew the thief's name. And he'll never forget you. If you put your faith in Jesus, not only will he always remember you, but he promises to be with you for all of time. We don't have to resort to philosophy or metaphysical logic. Our faith is rooted in history. And facts, our confidence in the afterlife is justified by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It changed the course of this world. 
the, the, all the disciples and apostles went from fearing and hiding and cowering in a room, worrying about what tomorrow was going to bring. But the moment he rose, all of a sudden everything changed. We find them all of a sudden becoming all becoming bold and powerful and, and, and presenting this case. If Jesus didn't die and rise again the third day, what changed all those people? What caused them all to actually go to their deaths? No, it's because Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the most provable fact in the history of this world. Turn with Romans to Romans chapter 1, verse 3 with me as we wrap it up this morning. Thank you for your time. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Because if the cross was the demonstration of God's love for us, was the most wonderful demonstration of God's love, then the resurrection is a demonstration of God's power. And it tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus proved he was the son of God because he conquered death and rose from it. All the claims Jesus made about himself were proven in that one event. It proved not only that he loved us and gave his life for us, but it says here in verse 4 that he's declared to be the son of God with power because of the resurrection from the dead. And that's why we can have confidence in our own resurrection. That's why a Christian can face death and have no fear. Because you already know who's waiting for you on the other side. And Romans 8, 11 says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He now dwells in you. If he dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies, which means bring to life your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The reason we can rejoice today is because Jesus not only died for us, which revealed God's love, but he rose again on the third day, which reveals God's perfect power. Death cannot separate you from God anymore. There is no place that you can go, that you can be, that God will lose you. He cannot lose you and me. He won't lose. And his power is enough to rescue you from any position that you're in. The good news for us today is that God is loving. That Jesus endured the cross because he loves us. And that God's power is far-reaching and you are in that reach. If you have repented this morning, if you have looked at your life and you've said, you know, God, I know that you're holy. I know that you're perfect. I know that you're a righteous God. And I'm not right before you. But I do know that you sent your son to save me and that he gave his life for me on that cross. I do believe that he is the Christ that he is your chosen one, that he is your son, and I choose to put my faith in him. Save me. If you prayed those words and you mean them from your heart, the Bible says that you are saved. That your life will never be the same. That you will never be forgotten. That your name will be written in, the, in, in a book of life in heaven. And you will have eternal life given to you as a gift. And from that point, it's not about working your way to heaven because you've already got it. You've got that thing in your hands and you can never lose it because he can't lose you. It's all about living a life of love. To love him as much as he's loved you. That's our challenge. And so if you're a believer this morning and you have that thing in your hands, if you possess Jesus Christ as your saviour and he possesses you, moreover, then love him as much as you possibly can. Remember what he endured for you and give him everything of your life because he deserves every part of you. Call him Lord and live like it. And if you don't know what eternal life is this morning, if Jesus isn't your Lord, then don't leave this place before you do know it. 
because you don't know whether today will be your last, whether you have another moment to spare. That thief had only a few moments to live and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He was a difference between him and the thief on the other side. One is gone. The other one lived. One's in hell. The other one's in heaven. It was simply by putting your trust in the one who will change your life. There is no power in this world that can take you away from the love of Christ in God, in Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.